let's hear the Lord speak to us. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, there, let him remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. Somebody once told me that, thank you, somebody once told me that our worst faults are the ones that we're not aware of, but, yeah, that's kind of true, but I think there's actually worse faults than that. I think the worst faults are the ones that people have told us about and we just don't care about, and I have lots of faults probably that I'm not aware of, but there's one fault that I have that I am aware of, but if I'm honest, I don't really care, that's really bad, Um, and it is this. I am a really impatient driver, like a really impatient driver. Yeah, yeah, pretty bad. Uh, And I don't know, I think it's part of my personality, but probably it's just growing up in the country where everybody drives as fast as they possibly can all the time. Like you don't, there's no such thing as, why would you go slow? You just drive as fast as you can. Um, But I, I hate, I'm getting angry thinking about it, waiting behind other cars. Um, So I do this thing where, you know, it's like there's two lanes, and I'm in a lane, and then that lane starts moving, I'll jump into that lane, and then all of a sudden, well, that lane's moving, and I keep, I'll just go in whatever lane I think I'm going to get there quickest. I hate waiting behind cars. But this, I, I can never stick in a lane. I just can't do it. And I think sometimes that that's how a lot of us live our lives, isn't it? Especially if you're a millennial. I, I hate that term, but that's what we are. If you're born between 1979 and 1999, you're uh, a millennial, by the way. Um, and that's most of us in this room, I think. Um, but we, 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 can't, we can't ever fix ourselves in a lane. Somebody asked me the other day uh, what my grandfather's occupation was, and I was able to say, oh yeah, he was a plasterer, because that's what he did from he was 16 until he was nearly 70. He was a plasterer. That was his occupation. Now, I don't think anyone's going to be able to say that about this generation's grandparents. Oh, what was your granny's occupation? Well, she did this for two years, and then she went on to this for three years, and then she, it's just not the same. We, we, we have multiple jobs. So I was doing some research online. <clears throat> it's estimated that the average person in the UK will ch- change jobs uh, less than every five years. Less than every five years, you'll change jobs. And most people of this generation, that's that, the, that's that millennial generation, will have around 12 jobs in their lifetimes. I've already had six more jobs than that, and I'm 35, so there you go. Um, I'm hard working, but I just can't stick at anything. I will stick at the church, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Shouldn't have said that. (laughs) But this is kind of, that's like the prevailing narrative of the day, isn't it? Right? So uh, what are we told? What is every single person told? Be who you want to be. That's basically it. Be yourself. Find yourself 
and then do that, own it. Like, watched a fair amount of Disney movies over the Christmas holidays, and that's kind of the thing. What's the one with the, what's the Scottish one with the curly red hair? Brave. No, be who, don't let anyone tell you you are. Be who you are. I think there's a pretty good message in that movie. But anyway, um, be who you are and just do it. But the problem is, none of us know who we are. We don't, we don't really know what will make us happy. And so we keep on searching and searching and searching for the next thing. We're, gonna, we're searching for the next job or the next relationship or the next position or, or the next whatever it is that's going to content us. The next thing that we can buy. It's, oh, if I just had that, then, oh yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. I found myself thinking that the other day. If I just, uh, I was going to, well, I know I will tell you what it's about. It's not that bad, but it makes me seem shallow, which I am. Uh, I was like, well, if I just, if I, had, if I had this kind of bike, then, you know, I wouldn't need any more. But that's not true, because if I had that kind of bike, then, I would obviously want something else. And that's what we're like. We just, we want the next thing. We can never pick a lane because we don't know who we are. So what's the solution? Well, the answer is Jesus, obviously, because we're a church and he's always the answer. Jesus is the answer. And that's what we're going to see from a passage this morning. God has called us to trust in Jesus and Jesus gives us an identity and a calling that provides contentment wherever we find ourselves in lives, in life. What we're going to see from this passage this morning is that wherever life takes you, God has called you to trust him, so remain in him. Wherever life takes you, God has called you to trust in him, so remain in him. This part of our series, is we call it Life Together, and it runs between chapter 5 and chapter 7. So after next week, we're going to move on to the next section, which is about denying ourselves. We're calling it Joyful Denial. Um, but in this section, one of the problems in the church in Corinth was, was this uncertainty about how a newfound faith in Jesus w- w- should affect their relationships with each other, right? So for example, uh, earlier on in the chapter, uh, They've obviously, they, they had written to Paul and asked him all these questions. And one of the questions they had was like, um, should, because we now believe in Jesus, should a husband and wife stop having sex with each other? Uh, because remember their mind, well, that's a physical thing and we want to elevate our minds. And Paul, thankfully, says, no, like that's, that's wrong at all. This is a good thing from God and, and, and it's to be enjoyed. And the other example is, uh, well, um, what, what if one, one spouse, the husband or wife, be, becomes a Christian, should, should they then divorce that, the, other, the other partner because they're not a Christian, we want to keep ourselves pure? And Paul says, no, 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 like God has ordained that you're in that relationship, so stay in the relationship that you were called in when God called you to faith in Jesus. Putting your trust in Jesus as your Savior will never destroy covenant marriage. That's, that's what he's saying. So in other words, coming to faith in Jesus doesn't make a person want to abandon a relationship, but, but, but God wants to use that to sanctify that relationship, to make it holy, and, and lead the other partner to Jesus. And so he has this principle. This principle that the Apostle Paul lays out is this. He says, when you become a Christian, stay in your God-ordained relationships. Stay in the relationships that God has given you. If you're married, stay in that. And so he's discussing in this very um, kind of to do with, with marriage and, and sexuality. He's discussing this principle. But then he goes on in this section we just read that Bex read for us to expand this principle to other areas of life. In fact, he wants to take that principle and expand it to every area of life. And this is where our first lesson comes from this morning, the principle of calling. 
I'm calling it the principle of calling um, because in this, uh, Paul lays out this principle that we're to live by. So there are some helpful techniques that we can use when we're reading the Bible if we want to um, try to understand what the message of a passage is. And one of those is that if there's a theme or a word that's repeated over and over again, um, that, that, that it probably is important. It has a place of importance. So uh, this is a handwritten letter that, that was being sent to the church and, and they weren't sitting, uh, everyone in their room, reading the letter. It was read out. That's why we, that's why we read the Bible because the word of God is a, is a spoken thing. God speaks. That's why we read the Bible out loud every Sunday. And so the, um, as this was read out, the authors, in this case Paul, would, would, would repeat things so that as you hear this read, you're like, oh, there's that word again, there's that word again, there's that word again. And it would add emphasis. Does anybody know what the word is in that passage? Did anyone pick it out? No one was listening. Calling. That's right, Calling. He mentions this word calling nine times. And so he says, he says uh, he's expanding this principle of staying in your marriage when you become a Christian. Uh, and now he introduces this idea of calling because he wants to expand on it. Now, what do you usually think of when you hear the word calling? I imagine it's probably something to do with vocation or what you do for a living or, or your situation in life. Like, I, I, you know, I, I'm called to be a footballer or I'm called to, I don't know if, I don't know anyone who said that. I'm called to be, um, certainly not anyone in Linfield. Um, I'm sorry, I just had to mention Queens. <laughs> That's all I had to mention. Um, I'm called to be a doctor. I'm called to be an artist or I'm called to be a parent or I'm called to be single or any, any situation. That's generally what we think of in calling. But when Paul says in verse 17, or when he, when he, well, actually, Eight out of the nine times he used this word in this passage, he's not referring to that kind of vocational calling, right? When he says in verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And when he says in verse 24, so brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, let him there let him remain with God. He's referring to a divine call from God that leads us to believe in Jesus, right? This is this kind of calling is the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to pull us into fellowship with Jesus. It's, it's the call that comes from God that causes a person to put their trust in Jesus and become a Christian. It's, what, it's what's called effectual call because it has the effect of making someone who wasn't a Christian put their trust in Jesus and become a Christian. And, and he, he makes this clear in chapter 1. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship, into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So all Christians, and, and only Christians, are called in this sense that Paul's using it here. There are, of course, other senses of the word calling, like, like we just used, like that idea of a vocation. Or like the call, the general call of the gospel. That, 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 that I might say, hey, come and put your trust in Jesus. That's different from what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the specific call of God that comes to you in the moment that you put your trust in Jesus. And if you're a Christian this morning, it's because God has called to you while you were dead in your sin and you've responded by turning to faith in Jesus. So we get a really good picture of this in John chapter 11. Um, Lazarus, who was a really good friend of Jesus, he gets sick and he dies. And Jesus wants to come and see him. And so, uh, uh, but he's a few days away, and by the time he gets there, Lazarus is already buried. 
Um, and Jesus weeps at his graveside at the effects of sin and death in the world, and he's lost his friend. And then he, because he wants to show them what his kingdom brings and what is coming for all Christians and what is coming for him, first and foremost, he does this. He has them open the tomb, which is a really weird thing to do. So he, sa- he says, open the tomb, move the stone away. And then he stands at the entrance of the tomb, and he shouts into it, Lazarus, come out! Literally in Hebrew, that's what he says, Lazarus, come out. And this dead man hears him and walks out of a grave. And if you're a Christian, then that's what Jesus has done to you. You were dead in your sins, and the Holy Spirit has called to you while you were dead, and somehow, because he is God, you have heard him, and you have turned and walked out of the tomb towards him. That's the call that Paul is talking about here. It's the case for every person that's ever believed in Jesus. They believe in Jesus because God has called them to himself. You believe in Jesus because God has called you to have a relationship with him. And that's what Paul has in mind here. And we see this earlier on in this letter as well. It's not just something that I'm, I want to prove that it's not just something I'm picking up, you know, from, from weird places. It's, it's in this very letter. It's all over Paul's teaching, actually. But back in chapter 1, in verses 23 and 24, if you want to go back there and look it up, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Right? So the called are not everybody that hears him preaching, but it's the called are those who, who receive it as the power and wisdom of God. So you might hear it and go, that is crazy then you are being called by the person preaching, but in that moment you're not being called by the Holy Spirit because when he calls you, you can't resist. Uh, a teacher called John Piper puts it this way. He paraphrases those verses and he's, he puts it like this. Paul says, When we call everyone to believe in Christ crucified, but many Jews find this call to be a stumbling block and many Gentiles find this call to be foolishness, but those who are called, in brackets he has, that is powerfully and effectively drawn to Christ, Find the gospel call to be the power and wisdom of God. See, when God calls us to trust in Jesus, we respond in faith and believe in him to save us. That's it. So what does this mean for this principle that Paul's laid out about marriage and sexuality and all that kind of stuff? Well, when Paul says in verses 17 and 20 and 24, you notice this, this, um, this passage is kind of like a Big Mac where you have like, <laughs> it is. Do you know like a Big Mac where you have like uh, the, the, the bun on the bottom? So that, well, we'll do it top to bottom because verse 17, the principle, that's the top bun. The middle bun is verse 20. That's the principle again. And then the bottom bun, verse 24. Y- you all know what a Big Mac is, right? You've had a few Big Macs, okay? I'm not talking crazy. There's a bit of bun in the middle, right? That's what this passage is like, just so you know. Yeah, there you go. I'm not going to t- stop talking about Big Macs. But when he, he says in verse 17 and 20 and 24 that we should remain and live with God in the state in which we were called, what he's saying is remain in the state you were in when Jesus saved you. So you, you might, you, 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 whatever job you had when Jesus saved you, you don't have to go and look for a new job. You don't have to leave your husband or wife just because you got saved. You don't have to stop speaking to your friends just because you now have faith in Jesus. Now, Obviously, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't change your circumstances uh, if you become a Christian, because clearly, Paul's not saying, if you were a drug dealer or a prostitute, 
when you got saved, just keep doing those things. That's not what he's saying. Our, our lives do change. We become new creations and our attitudes change and we see the world differently. But, and if you're in a situation that isn't compatible with, with being a Christian, with following Jesus, if you're in a job where you can't follow Jesus there, then you need to change that. But the essence of what Paul is saying is that whatever you think you might be called to in life, there is, uh, whether it's being a teacher or a musician or whatever, you now have a far greater calling on your life. It's the call that has brought you into relationship with Jesus. And so you can follow him. That, that supersedes every other calling in your life. And so the principle of calling is this. God has brought you into relationship with himself and he has placed you exactly where he needs you to be. I don't know many people that really believe that. God has brought you into relationship with himself. We believe that. And he has you exactly where he needs you to be. That's harder to believe, isn't it? That's the hard bit to believe. But God doesn't make mistakes. And you're exactly where God wants you to be right now. And, and he may not want you to stay there forever. He might, but he may not. And, we, and often our life situations and circumstances change, right? But right now, you are where you're meant to be. And you're called to follow Jesus there. That's, that's that simple. And he goes on to expand on this by using these two examples. And, and hopefully as we, as we see these examples unpacked, it'll help us to understand more of this principle that God has brought us into relationship with himself and he has placed you exactly where you're meant to be. The second lesson is the practice of calling. These... Um, these examples, right? So back in Corinth, there were, there were two things that really divided people. Ethnics and social status. So it's kind of like nothing really has changed, right? Religion and ethnics and, and, and social status. Nothing has really changed. But, and remember, the church was becoming more and more like the culture around them. And Paul was trying to remind them that they weren't meant to be like the culture around them. They were supposed to be different and distinct from the culture around them. In fact, they were supposed to be in many ways opposite to the culture around them. And they were supposed to have the values of the kingdom of God. And so I think this is why he chooses these two examples in particular. And the first example he uses is circumcision. It's about the ethnic divide between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. And listen to what he says in verses 18 to 19. Was anyone at the time of his or her call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Okay, that requires an explanation because honestly, I was like, how on earth do you remove the marks of circ circumcision? Turns out, 2,000 years ago, you can have an operation to be re-uncircumcised and it was very painful and a lot of things got infected. So there you go. And people in this church... We're trying to do this because they thought, well, I can't be a Jew anymore, so I've got to be a not Jew. And also, it's to do with the games. Everyone ran and wrestled in the nude, and so people would know if you were a Jew, and they'd look down on you because of your ethnicity. And, and Paul's saying, don't try to get that undone. Don't, don't, be, going, don't be bothering with that anymore. Don't, leave it alone. It's been through enough that I've went across the line to. I've crossed the line there. We'll edit that. I'll edit that out. Don't worry. Okay, carrying on. Was any, anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. So you don't need to be a Jew to be a Christian. You don't have to go and be circumcised. 
For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. So Paul's basically saying, if you become a Christian as a Gentile, don't try to become a Jew. If you become a Christian as a Jew, don't try to become a Gentile. That's basically what this uncircumcision and circumcision business was about. And it has implications for so many cultural divides. If you're black, don't try to become white. If you're white, don't try to become black. If you're a nationalist and you get saved, you don't have to try to become a unionist. If you're African or Asian and you become a Christian, you don't have to try and become all westernized. That's not how this works. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is for every nationality, every race, every ethnicity, every political persuasion. It permeates all of those things. And where God has placed you in life, the family you were born into, that's to be celebrated because now you're in Christ Jesus and you can fully understand your race and ethnicity. And there's a reason Paul gives for this. In verse 19, he, he, let, me, let me paraphrase verse 19. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commands of God is everything. Now that was the most offensive thing that you could say to a Jew. Because right? to be Jewish, your identity as a Jew was the most, the most important thing in your life. Loads of these people could trace their heritage right back to Abraham. It's incredible. I can't trace my heritage back more than a few people, a few generations. And they were so fiercely proud of it. And they believed that they were the real faith because they had this physical mark on them that defined them as the real faith. And now Paul is saying there's a far higher identity that's far, far more important. And if we understand what he's saying for everyone, it doesn't just offend Jews, it offends everyone. It offends us. Because think about how society asks us to think about our identity. Like I said earlier, it's just be true to yourself. So if you're gay, be gay and proud. If you're black, be black and proud. Whatever you do, whatever, however you choose to define yourself, own it. Be true to it. But God says, these things are nothing compared to keeping the commands of God. Compared to obeying Jesus, those things mean nothing. How you define yourself sexually or how you define yourself politically or how you, what country you were born in or what race you're part of or, or all these things, all these things mean nothing but keeping God's commandments is everything. Therefore, don't try to switch cultures. Stay where you are and obey God. And, and excuse me, I got a cold. Uh, that was a really unpopular way of thinking. It was unpopular then, and it's unpopular now because it's eternally true. It's eternally relevant. Paul is, is completely and radically and fanatically God-oriented, God-centered. He Everything, everything in his life comes after the priority of following Jesus by obeying the commands of God. Everything. And this is so important to grasp. And if we don't, if we don't get this principle, we can kind of fall into a new form of legalism. Do you know what I mean by legalism? Legalism is, is essentially taking the letter of the law and saying that that's more important than the spirit behind the law. Let me give you an example. So in Acts 15, there's an example of, of, of people saying, well, you need to be, the, the Jews who had become Christians, they were saying, you need to be circumcised to be a Christian. That's legalism. Now, a new legalism would say, well, you don't need to be uh, circumcised to, to be a Christian. 
you need to be uncircumcised. No, yeah, you need to be uncircumcised to be a Christian, so you better go and get that thing reversed. That's what we're talking about here. And if we start thinking that way, we're going to miss the point entirely. It's okay to take on cultural adoptions. It's okay. Paul's not given a blanket ban on and anyone who uh, chooses to adopt certain parts of their culture and maybe uh, reject certain parts of their culture or take on uh, certain parts of other people's cultures. He's not blanketed in that. And we know that because per Timothy, in Acts 16, he has Timothy as an adult go and get circumcised why? So that, he could, uh, so that he could be part of the Jewish community, so that he could share the gospel with them. It's okay to, to own your culture as long as it's secondary to your identity in Jesus. And, what, and this, and this kind of made me sad this week and, and a lot yesterday, made me, or the day before, and got me thinking, what, see, what, what tends to happen in the church in Northern Ireland is this. We say the equivalent of you need to be uncircumcised. So we say that to, be, when, to become a Christian means that you have to become culturally Protestant. That's, that's essentially what we see in churches across Northern Ireland. So you can't be involved in the Irish language. You can't be involved. You can't follow the Gaelic sports. You can't desire United Ireland. Those things are wrong. And Paul says that's rubbish. All these cultural identities are nothing compared to obeying Jesus. So stay where God has placed you when you got saved because, and just obey Jesus there because that's where he needs you to be. In fact, later on, we'll see this in chapter 9, he, he, he actually says that we need to cross cultural boundaries so that we can reach people outside of our own community. He actually says you might need to adopt things uh, parts of culture that, that you need to, might to adopt things that are not part of your culture so you can share the good news of Jesus there. We don't have to uh, adhere to a certain culture just because we're in Jesus. And what Paul was doing, he was showing that obedience to the commands of God was way more important than any other cultural distinctives. And that changing these distinctives should be of no importance whatsoever to Christians. In other words, don't make such a big deal out of whether you're circumcised or not, whether you're black or white, whether you're unionist or nationalist. Don't make such a big deal out of these things, but instead make a big deal, make the biggest deal, make the aim of your life obedience to Jesus. And then, you know what happens when we order it in that thing? Then these cultural distinctives that we have, they become beautiful because they become this, we, each one becomes part of the multi-ethnic, multicultural body of Jesus that has gathered people from all over the globe. And you begin to understand your own culture, how this makes sense in, because it's being part of this culture and owning this in this way is an act of faith and obedience to Jesus. And it becomes beautiful. Paul's not saying get rid of all your cultural identity. He's saying stay in them, but they're secondary to knowing and following Jesus. John Piper says this. He says, the application of Paul's principle to cultural distinctives is this. Don't fret and don't boast about your present state of cultural distinctives. They're of little importance to God compared to whether you're devoting yourself soul and mind and body to obeying his commandments which are all fulfilled in this love your neighbor as yourself in other words what's more important than the color of your skin or your national identity or your surname or the school you went to or whatever it may be 
Are you staying in God by loving your neighbor as yourself and loving him above all things? That's what he's saying. And the second example Paul gives us is to do with social status, right? Or status. I never know what we're supposed to say. We say status or status, I don't know. He talks about slaves and free people. So listen to what he says in verse 21. He says, uh, where are you a bond servant? A bond servant is, is, it's the word slave. What ship are you going to? Are you on the Doulos or the Logos? The what one? Logos. Okay, there is one called the Doulos, which is this word, a slave. So um, he said, uh, was anyone, where are we? Sorry. Were you a bond servant? Were you a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. Now, that's a weird thing to say. Are you a slave? Are you in slavery? Don't be concerned about that. And we'll come back to that in a second. Hold that in your mind. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave, as a bondservant, is a free person of the Lord. And likewise, he who was free when they were called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So I need to be really clear. When he says, don't be concerned about being in slavery, he's not condoning or agreeing with slavery in any form. That's why he says, if you get the chance to get out of slavery, and back in those days, there were ways in society that you could earn your freedom, you should take it. You shouldn't be a slave to any other person because in Christ you're free. And the Bible never condones oppression of any people ever. I just want to be really clear about that because sometimes it can be confusing when you read that. The Bible is never condoning slavery. But what he is saying is this. If you are a slave, don't let your slavery make you anxious. Use it. Use that situation. Trust that God has you there for a reason. It's the same principle as before. If you were a slave when you came to know Jesus, use your position as a slave first and foremost to obey the commands of God, right? So the point is this. When, you're, when you are <clears throat> called into relationship with Christ and the family of his church, you get a new set of radically Christ-centered priorities. So much so, they take priority even over if you're a slave, right? That shouldn't be your primary concern. And there's so many great examples all throughout history, all church history, even in modern history, even today, of people who put their current situation second to following Jesus. People who, that's why people die for the faith. Even now, people die for the faith because they know that their current situation, as terrible as it is, is, is second to knowing Jesus. So he says, when you were a slave, when you were called to Jesus, don't worry. Do you have a menial job? No, don't worry. Are you on minimum wage and it's not a particularly fancy job and no one really thinks highly of you because of that? Don't worry. Don't let it concern you. It's the same point as he made before with the cultural differences. Where you find yourself in life is far less important than the fact that you've been called by God into the family of Jesus, and that should be your first priority. And he could have given the same reason as he did in verse 19. He could have said, well, being a slave is nothing, and being free is nothing, but keeping the commands of God is everything. And that's right. That's true. But he goes on to deepen his explanation so that we can get more of an understanding of what's happening here, of, of the mind of God. Right. So the reason a person who's in slavery can say, I'm not concerned about this, is given to us in verse 22. He says, for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a free person in Christ. And the reason a person who is free 
can say, well, well, that doesn't really concern me too much, whether I'm a slave or, or whether I'm free or not, is because he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. So this means that in the gospel, we don't have to despair if we have a menial job. And also, you shouldn't be full of pride if you have a high-powered, well-paid job. In other words, your, your, your position in life is no cause for concern because God has you where he needs you to be. And, and, and what overrides and supersedes both of those is that in Christ, the lowest are lifted up and the highest are brought down. Paul looks at the slave uh, who feels hopeless and he says, in Christ you're a free person. You were bought with a price. Christ bought you out of slavery, the real slavery, the slavery of sin. Don't let anybody enslave your soul or your mind. Rejoice in the Lord and find your hope in him and you will be freer than you have ever been. And he looks at the free person with the, with the, you know, the, the, the high person, the high power position. And he says, don't become proud about that. Because in Christ, you're actually a slave. There's only one person who has authority over you, and you need to be humble or submit to him. No matter how much authority you have, Jesus has authority over you. And I, I was thinking, like, imagine how this would have gone down in their church in that culture. Like, this is a place that's obsessed with social status. The church would have had high-powered, rich, free people passing the communion bread to a slave in rags next to them. Isn't that incredible? This is what the gospel does for us. Like It makes us all equal. It lowers the proud and raises up the lowly. You see, in Jesus, we're all equal. We're all brothers and sisters with the same status, no matter how rich you are, how poor you are, how powerful you are, how weak you are. We're all equal. No matter how wealthy you are, you have nothing compared to the wealth of King Jesus. No matter how, how low you are in society or how poor you are, you have infinite riches in Jesus. And this is what the church should be like. This is what we desire our church to be like, that we're all equal. In Jesus, we're all free and all slaves to him together. Your status in Christ is, is far more important than your social status. I keep switching between status and status because I can't decide. So he's saying, regardless of where you are in life, just be content. Pursue Jesus, love him above all, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I don't know if you, I, I, I imagine I've spoken about this guy before. Brother Lawrence, I've, I mean, he was this old, I, he wasn't always old. He's old in the sense that he's long dead, this monk. And uh, he, uh, he had a bit of a gammy leg and... He wasn't the smartest guy, and, and basically in the monastery, his role was to work in the kitchen. So he was the cook, and he cleaned, and all that kind of stuff. And he, uh, his, um, his autobiography, it's kind of a biography. It's letters that he has written to people and so on and stuff, but it's, it's amazing. And this is the guy who had the lowest position in society, right? He didn't own anything except, I don't even think they, they do own the robes that they wear. I think that's given to them. He didn't own anything, and he just worked in the kitchen, and the way he talks about his relationship with Jesus, he says, he says, my times with the Lord are so sweet that I'm embarrassed to mention them. Like his relationship with Jesus is so intimate, it's almost like I can't share that with you because this is too personal. That's what, that's what it should be like, regardless of our position in life. 
We desire to just know Jesus more and serve him and obey him. And then in return, he blesses us with this, with just contentment with where he has us, knowing that none of those things matter. That what matters is if we are remaining in him. And that's our final lesson, the permanence of calling. Paul finishes this paragraph with the words of 24. So, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, let there let them remain with God. Did you notice those last three words? Remain with God. That's the crucial phrase. What matters in life is staying close to God and enjoying his presence. Staying with him no matter where life takes us. Now, I want to add here before I go on, that doesn't happen automatically. You know why? Because we still struggle with sin. And unless we put the time in and spend time with God, then we're not going to enjoy his presence. It's going to become a bit dull and, and faded. Like a marriage that doesn't have any communication or, or time spent together. What is it? Yeah, there's a, there is a covenant there that can't be broken. But there's no joy in it. There's no love in it. You need to put the time in. You need to put the work in. You need to make the effort. What matters is... What matters is that are we remaining with God? It doesn't matter whether our job is high or low in the eyes of the world. It doesn't matter what nationality or what race we're from. What matters is are we remaining with God? Are we being led by? Are we being encouraged by? Are we being humbled by his presence in our lives? These two things that he mentions in verse 19 and 24, obeying the commands of God and enjoying his presence, verse 24, are so much more important than what your culture is, what your job is, that you don't have to feel compelled to keep chasing the next thing. What's next for me? How will I find fulfillment? You already have it in Jesus. Just enjoy it. Pursue him. Why? We shouldn't be motivated by fear or pride to keep trying to find the next thing because, or the better thing because in Jesus we have the best thing. And that's what he tells us, to trust him. You have to trust him, right? You have to go, okay, I don't feel content right now. I'm going to trust God that when I pursue him, that I will be content. Because you will. That's what he's promised us. No matter what our position in life, we're able to say, never, never mind about that. Because Jesus, you're my life. My life is to obey God and enjoy his presence. That's my life. Obeying the commands of Jesus and remaining with God is way more important than any other status in life. In other words, we don't need to change our ethnic or social status to obey God and walk with him. This effectual call of God that causes us to trust Jesus in the first place, that, 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 that calls us to change our hearts, not our circumstances. It's not like God isn't sovereign Sovereign just means in control of, ruling over. God isn't, it's not like he's not sovereign over some parts of, of life. He, he's, he's over it all. And so he's assigned you a station in life for now. It may not be forever. It may be forever. But right now, he's assigned you to where you're meant to be for his good purposes and for your joy. And just enjoy him and trust him and obey him in that. He has you exactly where he needs you to be. Years ago, and I'm done here with this wee story. Years ago, I used to work in a homeless hostel for young people. And uh, I worked with a woman uh, called Pauline who was in her 50s and um, would, um, was from West Belfast. Um, Liam's not here this morning, but he would like that. And uh, she's from West Belfast, and she was kind of like everybody's mommy, you know? Like, she just looked after us all. It doesn't matter if you were a resident or you were uh, a part of the staff like I was, like... 
She just looked after you. She's everyone's mommy. And that was just her personality. And she loved caring for people. And I was in my early 20s at the time. And, and I was really unsettled and immature. I'm still immature, but a bit more settled, hopefully. And, and I would just, I'd just be talking about, like, um, oh, I, I want to do this. And I want to do this. And maybe I should do this. And I, should, like, all, that was, I was kind of obsessed with that at the time. And, and, and any time she heard me chatting like this, she would just say to me, she's like, Andrew, you need to learn to blossom where you're planted. And that's kind of an old, an old fashioned phrase, isn't it? But there's so much truth in that. And she was right. Like, if we don't learn to be content with where God has us right now, we'll miss out on so much. We'll miss out not just on all the blessings that He has for us, but He'll miss out on all the ways that He has for us to bless other people. If my concern is where am I supposed to be and what am I supposed to be doing, and I don't, then, then God isn't, can't fully use me to bless people around me. You may be missing opportunities because you're, you're so concerned with where you're meant to be. And I think that's a real danger for all of us. But listen to this. In Jesus, all the promises in this book are completely true and fulfilled, right? So I can read the promise that God gave to Joshua. I will never leave you or forsake you. And I can claim that as mine because I am in Jesus. So Jesus has promised to us that he will never leave us or forsake us. And we can also claim the promise that he knows every single day of our lives, every single second of our lives. And that we can also trust the promise that he is on our side. We can trust that he is with us and that our future is secure so that we can be content. We can just blossom where he has us for as long as he has us there. We can prioritize obeying his commands and, and remaining with him. Listen, God is for you. Maybe you haven't thought about that in a while. Maybe you've never thought about that. God is for you. He's on your side. He sees you and he needs you to be where you are right now. You're safe in him. So you just trust him. And as we come to the table in a minute, like we do every Sunday, we're going to remember how he demonstrated all those promises to us. That, that he sacrificed himself to death on a cross. Dying in our place. So that... So that we wouldn't be aimlessly wandering around the earth trying to figure out where we're supposed to be going. But so that we could have a purpose, so that we could have joy, so that we could have peace, so that we could have eternal life. So listen, wherever life takes you, God has called you to himself, so remain with him. Let me pray.